0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock.
1: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
0: This week we're discussing one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible, the miracle of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, as told in Exodus 14, 5-14 and 21-29. We talk about Pharaoh's relentless pursuit of economic profit through the use of military force how that single-mindedness leads to the downfall of empires, both in Pharaoh's time and in our own. We admire the courage of the Israelites, who trust in the possibility of a better future despite all the evidence, and find themselves birthed again through the waters of the sea. And we remember the Egyptian soldiers and their families, caught up in a struggle not of their own making, and mourn the senseless loss of life, both then and now. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week?
1: I am doing all right. How are you?
0: I am doing all right as well. <laughs> yeah, the um, I will say that the Bible worm rhythm was heavily dependent on my being on leave. <laughs> and so now that I am <laughs> yeah. not on leave, it is a whole different world of trying yeah. to get all of the things done. But I also feel like I'm out in the world, like I'm having things are happening, I'm having like experiences, meeting people. So it's I feel
1: like we need to trust at some level that all of that stuff feeds into our thinking about these texts in a way that is fruitful and expansive and um useful for lack yeah. of a better word. Yeah. I I have to really remind myself that just sitting at my desk and working all the time is not oh, actually yeah. a good way to be a someone who thinks about these texts. Like I have yeah. to go out in the world and have yeah. random experiences and talk to random people and whatnot. Even if in the moment I'm like, no, no, I have to do my work.
0: Yeah. I'm teaching this new class, you know, on Judaism, Christianity, and Islam and In working through the Judaism section, I've been sort of working on those texts where they talk about like 70 sides of the Torah and turn it and turn it because everything is in it. And like this rabbi said this and this one was like, yeah, that's great. But did you think about this other thing? Like that whole model of like we all bring what we have to the text. Uh, I really love that model, and I feel like yeah. For the last couple of years, mostly what I've had to bring to the text is like I was in my house. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a two-year-old or whatever. I mean, just, with a, with little ones, that's yeah. It's not like you can get all stuck on your head. Yeah. When you have little humans,
0: that's true. But for current purposes, narrative lectionary wise, we are moving mm-hmm. today from Genesis thirty-nine and the Joseph story to Exodus fourteen. Some various excerpts. I think what we're going to do is not exactly what the narrative lectionary is. I said to Amy when we got on the call that I think we're going to add back these verses that the narrative lectionary leaves out because I think they're trying to avoid all this conversation about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Amy said, I knew that's what
1: you were going to do. Like, <laughs> I was like, there's no way Bobby's going like, to let yeah. that fly. There's no way.
0: So what we're going to read yeah. today is five, uh, chapter 14 of Exodus, verses 5 to 14, and then 21 to 29. We're going to leave out part of what the narrative lectionary leaves out, but we're going to sneak that conversation back in there. So Amy, mm-hmm. this is the crossing of the Red Sea, or however we're going to talk about that sea, I suppose,
1: mm-hmm. which is
0: kind of a long way from the Joseph story. What do we need to know in order to get us prepared for reading this text?
1: I think there mm, are—I was going to say two big things, but maybe I shouldn't count them. We'll see what comes out of my (laughs) mouth. Uh, The first big thing is that, you know, you'll remember in the Joseph story that Joseph winds up in Egypt, right? His brothers leave him in a ditch. He's picked up and brought to Egypt, and and over time they really gained the trust of people in power first yeah. Potiphar and then eventually Pharaoh. Yeah. There's a famine in the land, his family comes to Egypt, his family is basically all the ancestors of Israel. <laughs> so so over many generations, the, the people that we will come to call the people of Israel is living in Egypt. And for a while, it's, it's fine. It's great. Um, they have a good relationship with Pharaoh. Pharaoh knows Joseph, trusts him. It's all good. But then, very ominously, the text reports a Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph and is really not at all invested in this relationship between peoples that has been going on, and in pretty short order, the Israelites are um, moved into a th- moved into. I was going to say a slavery role that makes it sound like they've just like been sh- their jobs been shifted, <laughs> but they become they become slaves yeah. to the kingdom, slaves to Pharaoh, and are are terribly mistreated. So the story, most of the story we encounter in Exodus up to this point is how, how bad it's gotten yes. and um, some preparation for what can happen next. The other big thing that happens, of course, is we meet Moses, who is born of an Israelite woman, but raised um, by Pharaoh's daughter. Because there is, uh, it's not safe for an Israelite woman to try to raise her own son at that point. He would, he's better off, more likely to survive if, if he is raised by someone else, by an Egyptian. So we get that very famous story of him being placed in a basket in the Nile and he's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. So we talked last year, I think, when we encountered Moses about the way in which he really sort of inhabits these two he's He's split between he's got one leg in each world, you know he That's certainly right. is a connection to the people of Israel. He is of the people of Israel. and he is of the household of Pharaoh and he knows the household of Pharaoh and and maybe for that reason, maybe for others, he is the one that God speaks to and says you're you're gonna lead the people out of Israel. I could just, I could talk so much more about that, Bobby, but I. Oh, but my I, goodness.
0: It's yeah. Too a much. Foundational story for <laughs> yeah. for your community and for my community and for the whole biblical story. There's a lot one can say. I I love where you ended there because it reminded me of the Abraham text, which I, which I was not really thinking about, but you said, uh, God picks Moses maybe for this reason, but we don't really know why. And I was like, that was a sort of the same conversation that we had about Abraham. God picks Abraham. It's not really clear why God picks Abraham. So I just think it's kind of interesting that God, like these momentous figures in Israelite history, Jewish history, and we don't know why God's picking them. They're just, Mm -hmm. they're just picked. We did know a little bit with Noah, I suppose. It walks in the way of God, but anyway. Yeah. That piece you were saying just about the economic exploitation. And then as as you know, Pharaoh becomes afraid of the Israelites at one point Mm -hmm. and starts Mm to have their... Babies killed and thrown into the Nile and all sorts of things. There's a an anxiety present among the Egyptians that lead to the like the the murders of Israelites. And to me, that's an important background in this text because there this text gets a little violent here at the end. And so thinking about like th- this is not originary violence. There has been violence already going on. And it makes me really uncomfortable to talk about the violence in these texts but also it's there. And so thinking about how to contextualize it, I think is going to be important for us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's pick up with this story. And as this story picks up, the Israelites have been originally set free by Pharaoh after the 10 plagues. And then Pharaoh is changing Pharaoh's mind and Mm -hmm. about to decide to pursue them uh, on their escape. So picking up in chapter 14, verse five, When Egypt's king was told that the people had run away, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people. They said, what have we done letting Israel go free from their slavery to us? So he sent for his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captains on all of them. The Lord made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn, and he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. The Egyptians, including all of Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots, his cavalry, and his army, chased them and caught up with them as they were camped by the sea by Haroth in front of Baal Zephon. The first thing that just is so interesting to me, like if you think about the story arc, Pharaoh and his people have just been through 10 plagues mm-hmm. that have culminated in the death of all of the firstborn children mm-hmm. of Egyptians, all the firstborn of all the Egyptian animals, like, There has been this massive death, which has compelled Pharaoh to say, I yield. I'm going to let you go. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing we get is this changing of the mind. he hears, he says, he says, go away. They go away. Then the text says, when he hears that they had gone away, he and his officials change their minds and say, why are we letting these folks go? The text doesn't really get us very far into like what's going on in the mind of Pharaoh, but can you help us get into the mind of Pharaoh a little bit? What do you imagine is going on there?
1: It's such an interesting moment in this story. And I guess, I guess the way I think about it is sort of, you know, Pharaoh's finally relenting and saying... Oh my God, fine. get out. <laughs> yeah. go. you want to go, go. You're obviously bringing these these curses upon the land in some way is a a a sort of f- f- quick response to a really traumatic, yeah thing. Not that I necessarily think there was a there was a logical way to talk Pharaoh through it and <laughs> have, <laughs> right. have him arrive at this point in some other way, but it's it's almost like once that moment. Of like genuine panic, it seems like passes. Yeah, Pharaoh starts thinking about again like the the economic yeah. <laughs> power that he's giving up by yeah. telling them to go, and and questioning. I guess whether was it really that it was because of these people that all this, these bad things happened? Was it re- like sort of talking himself out of right? His initial read of that situation, maybe, or maybe he just cares more about the money than all the dead Egyptians. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that that would be a smart move for a leader, though.
0: Right. Now, that last move that you were making is sort of where my head went. And, you know, it's sort of a, it's it's a really tragic thought, but I think it's it's a one that we should consider is that at the end of the day, the economic benefit of having the Israelites enslaved outweighs for him the death of all of these people that has just occurred. Yeah. And so when you weigh economic output versus the lives of your people, I mean one way of reading this text is Pharaoh and his courtiers choose economic output. And yeah. you know that catches a little close to home in our own in our own time and maybe in all times and places, that yeah. um, oftentimes economics are put ahead of the the well being of the people. The other thing that I think about is, you know, at some level, this text and other parts of this text that we're not reading make it even more explicitly clear, but this is a test. Like, uh, this is a, a battle between the God of Israel and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And so, you know, there is a lot at stake in terms of honor and one sense of power and, like, who is in charge. And, you know, for Pharaoh just to say, okay, these slaves and their God are more powerful than Egypt and our gods would be a hard pill to swallow. And so maybe this is like, he's just so confident in his own power or the power of his regime that he just can't acknowledge that maybe their power is limited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah, I will try to reserve these comments for the end because I know we really try to stay close to the text. But as you're talking, it has me thinking of lots of current issues where there's a, a pressing tragedy that brings with it sort of this desire to respond. Like things have to change. We have to change because this is what happens. And then just fairly quickly there's this reversion to like, no, the old way is the truth. Right. Like the yeah. old way is the only way. We have to go back to the old way. Yeah. And it maybe it's about power. Maybe it's about economics. Maybe it's about uh just how hard it is to really wrap your head around a different worldview. But yeah, I can it it's it's both strange in the text and strangely relatable.
0: That's exactly right. When I asked the question, I was thinking it was strange. And the more we talk about it, I'm like, no, of course, that's what we do this all the time. That's what we always do. This is what we
1: do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. You freak out and then you convince yourself nothing happened.
0: One of the details that's in this text that the narrative lectionary proper, I think, was trying to avoid. (laughs) It first Mm -hmm. appears in verse four, which I did not read, in which God says, I'll make Pharaoh stubborn and he'll chase them. That's what God says. I'm going to make Pharaoh stubborn. And then in verse 8, which I did read, we get the Lord made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn. But in between there, we get that decision we were just talking about where Pharaoh and, and his officials changed their minds. How how do you read the relationship between God making them stubborn and them just sort of naturally being stubborn?
1: Oof, that's a doozy of a question.
0: <laughs> I just threw it out there. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean... Okay, this I think is not the answer that you're going for and is maybe not very fruitful, but it occurs to me and so I'm going to say it. Yeah. I think that sometimes the biblical text, while it is, you know, there, there's one God you're supposed to be worshiping in here, I think <laughs> I think without, the problem with having only one God is that you need to explain everything through that God. Mm, yeah. You know. And so part of what I see in here is that you can't this story is sort of set up as a power, as a power struggle between two entities that understand themselves to be God. But I also feel like the biblical text is struggling with that and saying, well, anything that Pharaoh did must have been related to God because it's like this question that people throw around at kiddish lunch all the time. Couldn't God just make you do whatever God wants? Like this very sort Mm -hmm. of simplistic version of, you know, how we might envision God's power over us in the world and questions of free will and blah, blah, blah. So part of this to me is just seeing that the, the biblical text as unsure how to explain why Pharaoh, why, why God can't just make this happen more easily?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So if God were, I see what you're saying. So there's a perspective that would say if God is truly God, then God could have just been like, then this should have been really easy. And right. If over. God is yeah. right.
1: If you believe that God can control everything, right. Then this should have been easy. And it's yeah. not so. Why isn't it? And so then yeah. that makes God have to play all the characters in like a one-act play, and then it kind of stops making sense.
0: Yeah, that's. I interesting. think there. Are,
1: I think there are other ways to read it, though. Yeah, I think there are other ways. No,
0: to I think, think it. that's a helpful way to talk about it. It's trying to solve a theological conundrum about if God is God, then why are the Israelites enslaved in the first place, and why is it so hard to get them out of slavery? I think that's totally reasonable. I, along those. Like, a, another way of getting into that issue is that, you know, the God's demonstration, like, God needs to demonstrate power, not necessarily just— So the freedom of the Israelites is not the only thing on God's mind here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: although I think it is on God's mind, but also God's honor in the world and people knowing who God is and the Egyptians knowing, but also the nations knowing. And then also, as you know, in Deuteronomy, like, tell your children and your children's children what happened in Egypt so that they will know who God is. So there is the, the freedom of the people is the near term goal, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: having the story to tell about who is really and truly God and you know, if the people just walk out of slavery, like doopy doo <laughs> like the story's right, not as good. You would start
1: to question. You would start to look back on it and be like, was well, that really God? Or, yeah, that's exactly or, right. Or did it just sort of happen? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we have to remember at this point, the Israelites don't seem to have this, don't seem to have had some kind of ongoing relationship to God throughout the time that they've been in Egypt. And when when Moses encounters God in the bush and says, who should I tell the people you are? Like, they don't, you know, like I'm gonna tell the people, you know, God (laughs) (laughs) by this, you know, name that God gives him is gonna take you out of Egypt. Like this is a totally foreign idea. So I think you're right. This is also, this, God has to create here some kind of powerful enough formative memory that it will literally sustain the people Israel through generations and generations and generations, like we still forever and right. ever, we still talk about this story and this, this is how we know it's real, but it just still doesn't read very nicely.
0: That's true. It's true.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is in there for sure.
0: The other thing that I was thinking in here in this, in terms of like, God says, I'm going to make his heart stubborn. And then Pharaoh says, we're just going to let them go, and then God makes Pharaoh's heart stubborn. So the way, one of the ways that I read that in verse 5 is that Pharaoh's inclination was already to be stubborn. God said, I'm going to make you stubborn, and then God does. But in between there, Pharaoh already had done it. Mm. And so mm-hmm. what God does in this text is not to make Pharaoh do something Pharaoh was not already inclined to do. But what God does in this text is take Pharaoh's pre- existing inclinations. I can't let those people go. And then God just makes Pharaoh more convicted of Pharaoh's own original instinct. Mm. I don't know. That might just be a way of me making God seem more palatable to me in this text to say like God, you know, God is not causing Pharaoh to do something. So he, so God can punish Pharaoh, but God is reinforcing Pharaoh's own inclinations to point out to Pharaoh how, horrifying they are or how problematic they are or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Any thoughts about that?
1: I mean, I don't know. I th- I think my most honest read of this is I think at the end of the day, it largely feeds back into the first idea you presented, which is that yes, God is dealing with the slavery issue and Pharaoh here, but really the end game is to create a long-term memory and belief in the people Israel. Of yeah. God's existence and God's power in the world, God's salvific power, which because of that they are asked to do very, very many things. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't think the text is that concerned about Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh's been a jerk, and now he's a pawn in the story. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if that's a great like modern. I don't know how you feel about that now, but.
0: Yeah, That's I don't know that I'm trying to make us feel sorry for Pharaoh. I think I'm more saying, I think the text is saying Pharaoh's going to Pharaoh. Like, uh, <laughs> this is uh, what empires do, even if God yeah. doesn't make them do it.
1: Yeah, Something yeah, terrible happens, all the
0: children die. They're still going to think, oh my goodness, we're going to lose our financial, our economic edge, so we got to go militarily after these folks and return them to slavery that's what empires do. That's what Pharaohs do. That's what Pharaoh yeah. was always going to do. God didn't make Pharaoh do that. This is what future empires are going to do. God's not going to have to make them do that. So I'm, it's, not, it's not that I'm trying to like excuse what God does to Pharaoh exactly. It's that I'm trying to say, yeah, that it's, it's in Pharaoh's nature. It is in the nature of Pharaohs to go after the people. And God has just kind of reinforced that. Mm-hmm. Instead of creating it sort of ex nihilo, God right, has reinforced has said, right, what was do already your thing, the, Pharaoh, Im- the go do your thing. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Mm. So I don't know. We get a lot about chariots, kind of a surprising lot about chariots. In verse seven, <laughs> 600 chariots, elite chariots, and all of the other chariots. And then in verse nine, all Pharaoh's chariots, his cavalry, his army. There is a lot of emphasis in these few verses just on the massive military apparatus that Pharaoh yeah. mobilizes. Do you have any thoughts about either why the text does that or what we might do with that?
1: I don't think I have ever thought about that, Bobby. I don't think I've ever thought about that, the emphasis in the text on the chariots. And the only thing I can think here is that it's, it's a reminder to us or a cue to us that with their bat, they're not battling... The Egyptians, really. I mean, they yeah. are battling the Egyptians, but they're, you know. So you you've referred back a couple times to the idea that like this is what empires do. Like, yeah, this is that they are symbolically like yes. this is the military force of an empire. That's what's chasing you. Yeah, not the people who are in the chariots. I don't know how well you can really separate those things, but yeah, yeah. Sim- symbolically, that is. Woo, that gives me chills. Yeah. We're still being chased by chariots, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I
0: mean, this is the empire mobilizing its military to protect its economic interests. Yeah. Like, when you put it that way, like, Mm -hmm. that is human history. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, that is always what is happening, is that some power is mobilizing their military force to protect their economic interests. So this is about Pharaoh and Egypt, and it is also about the great span of human history and what, and what people do to protect their, their interests.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay, so picking up in verse 10. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert?' What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. Mm. So first... Can you just talk to me about the terrifiedness of the people and sort of the? They're saying we we told you we didn't want to leave Egypt. Like it, it would have been better for us to be alive as slaves than to be dead out here. Can you just talk to me about that moment in the text and how you how you think about them?
1: Yeah, I found this time around reading that I just found it so poignant and so real like that that pull to just stay in a bad situation for fear that it will be worse yeah and then sort of i don't know if that's if it's in here quite yet but i don't know it's in here for me so i'll just put it in there i feel sure. like by by being willing to leave it all like that takes a little modicum of hope Like that takes a little modicum of belief that maybe something really is going to change. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've had moments in your life like this, Bobby, but that, that moment where you realize that you held a hope for something and it's not going to happen Yeah. for me is just like beyond excruciating. Like I, 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 And I don't know why, because I feel foolish on top of whatever grief I feel that I, how could I have believed that this thing that I thought was true, that was going to become true was never true. And I just, I don't know that sense of being betrayed by the world. I mean, I might be way over psychologizing this and the chariots just looked really freaking scary and, (laughs) you know. But I think that Israelites are in this sort of like liminal space where they've been willing to take a step that was a risk because they started to believe that things could change. And that moment where you feel like that was wrong and it was foolish. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's a mix of like terror and also anger and also um, embarrassment. Yeah. That could all get... Mixed in together.
0: I love that, Amy. I really love that. The idea of there's survival mode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there is
0: hope for the future mode. Yeah. And sometimes one of the ways of being in survival mode is to not allow there to be hope for the future. Right. I just need to live today. I need to get through today. I need to do the thing for today. And once you allow yourself to believe that something else is possible, now you, you are very much at risk in a different kind of a way because now you can not only like have to live in your situation, but you also have to deal all over again with the loss of the hope that you had. That's really, really powerful. When you, when you sort of envision what's happening here, like they've, they thought they had escaped. They made it to the sea. The sea is, I mean, there's a debate, the Hebrew Yom Suf is translated in the Septuagint as the Red Sea Maybe it means the sea of reeds. Maybe it means the sea at the end, or something like that. I don't. To me, that like which sea was it is really not all that important. But
1: right, right.
0: They have reached some impassable body of water, and you know we've just been talking about water and the destructive power of water a couple of weeks ago in the Noah story. So there is this thing on the one side that is impassable. There is this thing on the other side that's coming to kill them. They are. Mm-hmm. No, they are trapped, and their lives are at risk. And they had hoped, and now their hope is gone. And they could have lived another day with plenty of food, had they just stayed in the bad situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're at the edge of a total loss of everything, where at least before they had, they had something.
1: Yeah.
0: I also think that idea that doing something new, moving away from a, I mean, everybody knew that being en- enslaved in Egypt was bad. Right the move to some other kind of way of being seems on the face of it like a good thing, but it's a hard thing. Like it involves the loss of what is. Like even the move from a bad situation to a better situation still involves the loss of the security of the bad situation. It's really, really risky. And this is sort of those risks at the most risky moment. People sometimes give give the Israelites here a hard time for not being faithful. But to me, it's just like, of course, that's what you thought, like,
1: right. right? Just the
0: fact that they had the courage to follow Moses out in the first place, right. I feel like, is an act of faithfulness. And then they just they got scared. They, there was no there was no way
1: forward, right? The the for everything they had seen in their lives, everything they could possibly reasonably have imagined was that this was it. They couldn't have imagined the sea was going to part. Yeah you know, they just met this God, they didn't, yeah, you know, they don't have a, a long history of like, well, God's done all these other things for us. Like they, yeah, I I think their response is quite reasonable.
0: That last point that you made is easy to lose. And you, you said it a couple of times today, and I really appreciate it, but I just want to make sure that sort of, we keep it in mind that that the indication of the text is that the Israelites had had a relationship with this God in the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his sons. But then they have sort of forgotten who God is. Mm. So when they cry out in chapter two, they don't cry out to God, they just cry out. And Moses has to reintroduce this God. And so it's very different if you think, well, they have a long history with God. And so of course they should trust that God's going to do it versus what you're saying, which I think is exactly right, which is, they once had a relationship with this God, but that relationship hasn't been active for 400 years.
1: Right. Right. And they I just mean, what met do you him know like about the beliefs ago. that your family held 400 years ago? Not yeah. a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, you know.
0: Moses' reply, I mean, the essence of it is, don't be scared. Stand be where you are, <laughs> Watch what the Lord's going to do. What do you see in Moses' reply to the people?
1: My, tr- my, my translation is hold my beer and watch this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Man, I love the Jewish Publications
1: <laughs> I mean, I, it reminds me a little bit of, you probably are in this all the time because you have really little kids, that there are just things that you can't explain to them. There's no way you can get them to understand what's going to happen because they have no frame of reference for it. yeah, And so you try to explain what's going to happen. So they'll be, they'll feel calm and they'll be ready for things, but there are things that you just have to hope that they're going to trust you. And they're not going to, you know, like the first time you drop off a kid at daycare, no, they don't know you're coming back and you, there's probably nothing you can say that will convince them of it. They just have to see that it happens. Yeah. Mm. So I guess that's what I see here is that Moses is just like, there's, there's no way that I'm going to be able to like make you believe what's about to happen. you know, like, and I don't even know what Moses knows about what's going to happen other than something. Yeah. It's something, something that they could not conceive of is going to happen and they need to believe that well enough to, to let it happen.
0: Yeah. I think it's kind of funny that Moses says, stand your ground because like where are they going to go right like yeah. their backs are against the sea their fronts are against the egyptians like there's nowhere for them to go but i but i love that he frames it instead of like you guys are kind of trapped so <laughs> stand here he's like stand your ground so they're like yes we are standing our ground like, i just <laughs> think that <laughs> that's what we're doing like, it's just a re- it's a positive reframing of a bad situation we're going to stand mm-hmm. here and we're going to we're going to be brave we don't have any choice But I mean, and they are, you know, they do. Yeah. The other thing uh, that I see here is that the situation, like, not only does it seem impossible, the situation is impossible. They are unarmed. They're against the greatest army in the world. The other side is a sea that they can't cross. Like, it it is an impossible situation. And so if the question is, what can we do to get out of this situation? The answer is nothing. Yep. And so... Here it's you don't have to do anything. Like God, God has got this. There's you think there's nothing you can do, and you're right about it. You just have to trust. Here,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: What else? What else do we want to say about this little section of text, Amy?
1: It just um, it stands out to me because I'm in the middle of reading Deuteronomy with a Torah study group in my synagogue, but this theme of don't be afraid, don't run away from the scary things and trust that God is gonna take care of it mm. comes up over and over again in Deuteronomy 2. So I just have been thinking about it a lot and I don't know, it's it's another one of these things that it's so it's so easy to read this story and say like, this has nothing to do with my life today. Like the mm. sea is not parting, I'm not being chased by chariots. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> it seems like the story really seems pretty out there. Yeah, but if we, I think the you know if we connect to it on the level of like human emotion and experience more broadly, if we you know squint our eyes a little bit, I actually think it has everything to do with our everyday Mm.
0: life. I want to hear. I want to hear more about that at the
1: Mm. at the
0: end. I think. Yeah. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode. If you're a Bibleworm listener who has never tried any of our other Patreon offerings, we have a special deal for you this month. For the month of September, all Patreon subscribers from the Bibleworm supporter level and up can receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies, regardless of your subscription level. You can join at the Bibleworm supporter level for just $4 to receive these benefits for the month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, you Cancel anytime. Visit Patreon.com/BiblewormPodcast for details on becoming part of Bibleworm's Patreon community. And now back to this week's episode. Okay, so we're going to skip a little bit down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into a panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they couldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said, "Let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt." Mm. So, I Amy, mean, this is probably one of the most famous images in the whole of the Bible.
1: For sure.
0: How do you envision what's happening here?
1: It, my what I envision is heavily influenced by the far side cartoons that were <laughs> popular in my youth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like the one with Moses parting the bathtub like that one?
1: Oh, there's the, I mean I feel like there are a couple. There's one with like Moses is trying to fish. No, someone else is trying to fish and Moses keeps parting the water right where he's fishing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so I don't know if my answer is very sophisticated. I mean, what I'm what I'm picturing is there's there's been this huge uncrossable sea you know, and, and sees what bodies of water in the biblical text are the early, maybe that sort of the underlying biblical text are often associated with these forces of sort of chaos and overwhelm. And, you know, the Psalms think maybe there are monsters in the sea and they yeah. like, they're, you know, big bodies of water were frightening, frightening things. And, and Moses raises his arm and basically like a pathway opens, like a little red carpet for them. Yeah. To walk down. I still actually think it would take a lot of faith to trust that it's gonna stay oh goodness, like that yes. and walk through it. I mean, that's crazy. But you know, this description of the water as being like walls, like having this very clear, discernible endpoint. Yeah. This for me is is one of the the big battles that their God is is fighting here, is like the battle against these forces of chaos. Like yes. God can control even. Even this body of water that that may be full of monsters.
0: Yeah, I, w- one of the things I say to my students is that line line one on the resume of an ancient Near Eastern god applying for a job as God is mm. can control water.
1: Yeah, that both
0: means to prevent the chaos of uncontrollable water. And also to meter out water in ways that are life-giving. That's like task number one. If you can't do that, you might as well not apply. That's
1: right. For this job interview, this has been an important uh, demonstration.
0: One of the things that I think is interesting in this text is, I think in my head, maybe I'm influenced by, I don't even know, like Charlton Heston or something like way back in the day. Like I went to Universal Studios and- In uh, L.A. when I was a kid and there was like the Moses exhibit and it's like the water just like suddenly went. But the way the text talks about it is there was a strong east wind all night and that's what created the split in the sea. Yeah. And so it's 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 highly miraculous. And also like it took the nighttime and it was caused by the wind. Mm. And I wonder. So I have wondered whether it would have been possible for the Egyptians to not really realize what was happening. They just thought, wow, it's really, (laughs) it's really windy today. And so there is this split in the sea. Do you think the Egyptians knew? No, that's that's a kind of a silly question, but like at one point in this text, they're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's not until verse 25 that they're like, oh, this, the Lord is fighting for them. What do you think when the Egyptians decide to go in, what do you think they're thinking? I guess that's my question.
1: That well, that is—that's a good question. Could this have been? Could they have interpreted this as a natural phenomenon? Is that sort of your—that's part of my part question. Of your question.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh. I mean, it says it was standing up like a wall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Unusual, I mean, but, but there certainly are are modern folks who will read this text and try to look for like weather phenomena where that could yeah. Happen temporarily, yeah, but that is an interesting question. if part of God's point here is to make it like perfectly stinking clear that this has to be a demonstration of divine power yeah was it was it sufficient for the Egyptians? We don't know, but they're about to die anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't matter what they know, yeah.
0: yeah. Not that I'm not in any way suggesting that this was a natural occurrence or that this was not miraculous, but I think maybe one of the ways that this text could be read is the hubris of the Egyptians prevents them from realizing that this is God at work in the world until they have already gotten too far in Mm -hmm. to get back out again. Mm -hmm. So they think like, oh, look, the sea is separating and the wind blew really hard last night and Look how powerful we are. Let's go in after them. And it's only sort of belatedly like they figure it out, but it's only it's not until verse 25 when they say, Oh, wait, this is God that's doing this. We're kind of in trouble. So they've they've gotten way in over their heads, <laughs> literally, mm. uh, before <laughs> they just have realized, like, oh, we're not, we are not the power players in this situation. Yeah. Because otherwise, man. I don't know, like, if they're like, oh, hey, the God of Israel split the sea, let's go in after them. That's a whole other kind of hubris, I guess.
1: I mean, it just seems like at this point, to be still pursuing the Israelites after the 10 plagues, like to have reflipped the switch in your mind, and I'm not talking about individual Egyptian you know, charioteers here, but more that the power behind them that's telling yeah. them what they have to do that apparently yeah. they believe they have no option but to do what that that person says to do. Once the switch has flipped to back to, you know, econo- pursuing what's in the economic interest of the empire, I just don't even know if they're thinking about it. Like they just seem so single-minded yeah. to have turned off their awareness of what has just happened in Egypt yeah. it just seems like that it just seems like that switch never quite flips back on
0: yeah i i really like that amy and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier that the sort of the mobilizing the military apparatus to pursue the economic interests of the empire is such a powerful instinct that it drives you to all sorts of things and what God has done in this text by way of making Pharaoh's heart hardened seems to be just like making that instinct the only, like the natural instinct of the empire to do this has become the the only one. There, there There's nothing to check it. Yeah. And that leads them into what is clearly an impossible situation. Right. And yet they are still, yet they're still doing it. Yeah. I'm thinking of a Midrash that I can't remember anything about. Amazing. <laughs> I read it in a book somewhere, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you if you if you know what I'm talking about. It. There's a midrash about the crossing of the Red Sea mm. that is something about like the sea parted at every step that they took, so you were mm. always like stepping into mm-hmm. the water, like maybe you were always about to drown, but you keep mm-hmm. going forward. Do you know that midrash?
1: I don't know if I know the. There may be a different. There may be a different one. I know something close to that. The one I know is about he's a named person in the midrash Nachshon. I think this is it. thinking of Nachshon. So Nachshon is known as the Israelite who started walking into the sea, and the story is that the sea wasn't parted when he started walking through. He just had this crazy faith. And started walking and that uh-huh. he actually, I think the midrash is that he got in pretty far. Like he 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 walked, you know, all the way up to his knees and to his hips and to his chin before the water parted. And so it was like he sort of activates the the continued parting of the sea by his his willingness to put himself on the on the front line that way, which is pretty crazy.
0: I like I, I love that too because it emphasizes the bravery that that's involved in the stepping into the sea. I, I think yeah. it's easy to sort of process this as like I mean, well, it was dry, <laughs> you know, like all right. well, they really did, but there, but it really is an act of bravery, whether whether you envision it that way or some other way of, of stepping in. Yeah, my tendency in reading this text is really to want to—I don't know what this says about me—but I want to focus on the Egyptians and their sort of hubris in pursuing the Israelites. In the I mean in the Jewish tradition obviously this is like the Jewish people walking through the middle of the sea to escape from the empire. Can you just talk a little bit about how you or how that plays out in your tradition think about that crossing through the through the sea?
1: I will tell you um the way that I've been thinking about it maybe for the past year or so. Which is heavily influenced by this project that maybe I've mentioned on the podcast before. I'm not sure. It's called Torah Ta. It is a retranslation of the biblical text oh, yeah. in into they flip they are flipping the genders of everything. So everything that was gendered, gendered masculine is now gendered feminine, including both. You know, people and the divine and the inanimate objects, because everything has has a gender in just just the way the Hebrew language works. And I read their version of this story last year. And it I had always thought of this story as like reminiscent of creation, sort of there are these, you know, there's water and chaos everywhere, and then there's this wind, and the water parts and creates dry land, so that Other things can exist in the world. Reading it in this feminine translation, it reads like a birth. Mm. Like there's there's this watery chaos. There is total fear and panic and screaming and enormous Mm. pressure. There's there's nowhere to go but through. You can't turn around. (laughs) It's too late. But it is the birth of a people that was not – in the same way of people before. Like I think it's easy for us to mm-hmm. read the biblical story and say, "Well, they were always a people. They're, you know, descendants of the tribes and, you know, whatever and, you know, there's archaeological debate about who exa- you know, whether that is actually the people who emerged." I don't really care right now. But but this is the kind of formative experience for for my community that like this in many ways was this was the birth and we're witnessing yeah. like the birth pains and yeah. they emerged as something different. They, they emerged as a people in a way that they were not a people before this happened.
0: I really love that, Amy. That's beautiful. And then, you know, I was making me think about in a few chapters when God gives the 10 commandments, that's the beginning of the 10 commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so like that, formation of the people, like it's a bonding of the people and it's also a bonding of the people and God. And that becomes the Mm -hmm. basis for the things that happen going forward. That's really lovely.
1: It's an interesting counter to this hyper, understandably rightly, I think hyper militarized sort of violent battle scene that, that it's easy to draw out of the text when we, when we read it, you know, the way it's written in this sort of like masculine parlance.
0: Yeah. I also think it's interesting to try to hold those two together. Yeah. So that, you know, f- what Pharaoh yeah. was doing is exactly a hyper-masculinized military attack. Mm-hmm. And and to think about what, what God is doing is giving birth. So you've mm-hmm. got this like, those two things are both happening simultaneously.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One set of people is processing it the one way and the other set of people... Is processing processing it the other way, or the the other God is doing another thing. Mm-hmm. I think there's a I think there's a lot of richness that's possible there. The only other thing I want to ask about, just in this part of the text, is when the Israelites walk by in verse 22, it says they walked by on the dry ground. When the Egyptians try to come in, they seem to get their wheels stuck in the mud or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I don't know exactly what I'm what I'm working on, but.
1: Is it dry or is it muddy?
0: Is it dry or is it muddy? And what would one expect it to have been, I think? <laughs> I don't know. What do you do with that difference? Like, it's easy to read it as the the land was dry. The bottom of the sea was dry, and so God made it muddy for the Egyptians. To me, that reads very differently than if you say the bottom of the sea was muddy. God made it dry for the Israelites.
1: Mm.
0: I, don't, I don't know if that goes anywhere or not, but it... I'm just sort of toying. You know, it to that
1: it's such an interesting question. I hadn't. I understand. I certainly see what you're pulling out of the text. I hadn't understood dry to be. I mean, I guess I don't know the word for muddy. I just. Yeah. I had understood that to mean it's not a river anymore.
0: Oh. Like it's
1: possible <laughs> yeah. to walk through it, and had seen the difference. More oh, I actually in that like that
0: the best of all.
1: They're walking on their feet, and whereas. The chariots give you a certain amount of power out in the yeah. world. You can go faster and carry more people and carry a bunch of stuff. At this and this situation, it doesn't give you any power. It actually it takes your power because the wheels can't handle that mud.
0: Yeah, I really love that. I think I think that's the way I want to go with it. So it's a matter of the the Egyptians are in their in undefeatable military apparatus that we've been talking about over and over again for this whole passage. And that thing, which was an advantage suddenly is the thing
1: suddenly is, that a is disadvantage. working against them.
0: Yeah the Israelites are on foot and they they don't have any well, I mean, they have some things with them, but they don't have a large apparatus with them, and so they're more more fleet of foot.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. I think
0: that's my favorite of all of them. So now it's their reliance on their military apparatus. that's the thing that really gets gonna, that gets them in trouble.
1: Right their power, what was power is not power anymore. their power yeah. doesn't work here.
0: So in verse 25, the Egyptians have panicked and they have realized that the Lord is fighting for them, picking up, is fighting for Israel, picking up in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, their chariots and their cavalry. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the cavalry, Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The Israelites, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right and on their left. So we have been recently talking about God, water, and the destruction of things. Like that's been sort of a theme um, here in the early part of this narrative lectionary. How do you read this? I mean, I I go back and forth between whether to read this as this is a recreation of sort of the flood story where God uses Mm. water to destroy the evil empire Mm
1: -hmm.
0: versus like, I mean, the Egyptians should have just like all God really does is like put the sea back the way that it was supposed to be. Yeah. I don't, my question is a question about agency or about, like God's destructive capacity, or something. I I don't even quite know how to get at the question I'm grappling after. But do you do you kind of see what I'm what I'm asking? And can you help me with? Yeah,
1: it? I I I do see what you're grappling with, and it's it's hard. Like if if Amy got to edit the biblical text, <laughs> <laughs> it would have had you know at, at daybreak. It's interesting that all of this happens at night, but yeah. at daybreak, you know the water closes back, that doesn't seem, that doesn't trouble me so much. But then this part where it says, the Lord hurled the Egyptians <laughs> into the sea. I'm like, oh.
0: That's harder to. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: hard, yeah. that's harder to be like, oh, well, natural consequences.
0: <laughs> I have a hard time with that line anyway. Is, that, is there a source issue there? Because it seems like they're on the bottom of the sea and the water's returning. And then it says God tossed them into the sea, which just seems like a totally different Image And I don't, I don't know how to like, I don't even know how to envision that. Do you?
1: No, I think that, I think it could be a source issue or it could be that, that, well, I mean, it probably is a source issue or the biblical text is asking the same question we're asking. Like, did God actively defeat this military threat and put them to death? This is certainly not beyond what God would do in the, yeah. Biblical text that I mean God did it like happens. three weeks
0: ago. Yeah, <laughs> the, I mean that that is
1: we yeah. can feel all our feelings about it, but it absolutely is, you know, it's in biblical theology. That is a thing that happens. But it does seem like there's this other other sort of version of it that's much more the sea return to its natural state. I mean, it says the Egyptians fled at its approach, so maybe they were almost across the sea and they mm. just got out of it and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, even when we retell this story at the Passover Seder every year, we we express sorrow for the suffering of the Egyptians. Like yeah. there is sorrow mixed in with the yeah. gratitude and joy at being saved and being free. That it had to include, at least in the biblical version of events, that it seemed it seems like it had to include the suffering and death of. Egyptians. And that part does not bring us joy. Yeah. That still doesn't feel so great to say, to say yeah. <laughs> like, oh, well, collateral damage, you know, but I, I don't know if the, if the Egyptians had gone out the other side, do we really imagine they would have been like, we're going to join your people. Cause now we see how powerful your God is. I don't trust that they would have done that. Oh, so yeah. if, if the goal here really is the birth of a new people, I don't I don't know what the other options were. Yeah. But it is it's it is messy.
0: I talk from time to time probably more than I should about James Cone and his interpretation of love and wrath as being like wrath is the flip side of God's wrath is the flip side of God's love. Yeah. And what he means by that is God's love for those who are God's love for those who are oppressed sometimes necessitates God's wrath against those who are oppressors. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what you're saying. Would they have stopped pursuing and trying to re-enslave? To which the answer seems to be no. Yeah. And so then what do you do? If you want to love the people of Israel, if you want to love the people who have been enslaved, then you have to stop the oppressor. You have to stop the Egyptians from doing what they're doing. And so God's violence here is what enables the birth of that new people. That is super uncomfortable to say, particularly for me as a comfortable white American man. But I think there is something that's that's important about that. The other thing, and I've been trying, kind of trying to read this text this way the whole day, is I really do think that God's action against the Egyptians here is based on the already existing instincts of the Egyptians themselves. So yes, God is active, but God, what God is really doing is drawing drawing the Egyptians into their own destruction just by making their own natural imperial instincts stronger or something like that. So mm-hmm. they're pursuing the Israelites in the first place. They see that the sea is separated, and yet their hubris draws them into the sea with their military apparatus. Only when when they get in there, do they realize that their military apparatus is actually a disadvantage in this situation. And then the sea just returns to where it was like, they should have expected like seas are going to be seas. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that they think it's going to stay parted for them is a sign of their own hubris. Mm -hmm. And so like, to me, these things can fit together where God is sort of punishing or, in exacting vengeance li- against the egyptian's liberation for the israelites exactly by drawing out the negative implications of the imperial instincts of egypt that were that were already there so the Im- the empire contains the seeds of its own self-destruction
1: mm-hmm. and god
0: just kind of enables that process to c- to carry out i love i don't that. know that's sort of where that's sort yeah. of where I'm i am at least that. trying I love to come that. out today it
1: contains the seeds for its own destruction yeah, but they have to be activated somehow. Yeah, yeah.
0: But they were already activated. God just sort of like kept them activated,
1: mm-hmm. or something like
0: that. Yeah,
1: watered by the sea of the Nile. No, not the Nile. The Yam Suf, Yeah, whatever that is.
0: I really, I really appreciate what you were saying about collateral damage and uh, and sorrow for the Egyptians. And like to me, it's worth keeping in mind that it was Pharaoh's heart that was hardened not mm-hmm. the hearts of the egyptian people. Yeah. And this continues always to play itself out that the the one person who is in charge of all the things like they can lead to the destruction of lots and lots of their own people who may have realized it was a terrible idea mm-hmm. to walk into to ride into a sea on a chariot. But they <laughs> didn't have any choice because the pharaoh had made a had made a decision. So, I think that's worth holding too that the 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 decisions of the people of power often have broad implications for the for the other people
1: for sure, yes, yes,
0: it's interesting to me that the text comes back then in verse twenty nine and reminds you that the Israelites were walking mm. through on dry land, like it had already told us that once, and then it comes back and tells us that again. I think for me, it comes back to what you were saying earlier, like the the emphasis on the story is on the the birth of Israel coming out of the sea unscathed and this other stuff is i mean it's also very important but that's not the final word of the story the final word of the story is the the escape of Israel do, yeah. do you do anything with that return to the israelites in verse 29
1: you know it's funny in my um my one of my study bibles that i have open i have marked it but i didn't write anything next to it <laughs> so so you I don't thought know. It was important. I don't know. Yeah, it's um. I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. the The end of the story is not the destruction. That the end of the story is. It's sort of all the more miraculous after you see what logically should have happened. Yeah. To the Israelites. Yeah. To hold that uh, the contrast, yeah, helps helps to make the the point of the story. And the point of the story at the end of the day is the birth of this people and the birth of their relationship with this, their, their new newfound fa- the birth of a new relationship Yeah. with God.
0: All right, Amy. So this brings us to, we've been kind of leaning mm. forward all day, which I think is right when we're reading this text. We've come to the part where we talk about where we think this text intersects with contemporary life. What are you thinking?
1: This is often you ask that question and fear, like my blood runs cold, <laughs> as though I don't know it's coming because I have no idea what one could possibly say, and this week I have so many things I could say. I could answer that question in a million different ways. So here's one. Throughout the biblical text, there are many, uh, many times the Jews are reminded to keep Shabbat and Sometimes it says because God created the world on six days mm. and rested on the seventh day. So the, the logic seems to be sort of this is like an you know, imitatio dei, God rested and so you should rest. You are in the image of God. And sometimes it says, it juxtaposes it with this story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like God brought you out of Egypt and so you should keep Shabbat. Yeah. And up until pretty recently, I had read that as a sort of... Um, you should do what God says <laughs> mm. <laughs> because you wouldn't be here if it weren't for God. Like just mm, sort of yeah. a like because I said so, you should do it because I said so. But this summer I had this new thought put in my head that I'm kind of um obsessed with. And so I hope I haven't already said it on this podcast. You'll if so, we'll have to re-record this. But um, you know, we mentioned that when the Israelites are standing between the approaching military and the sea. There's no real way they could have imagined what would happen. Mm. There's nothing they can do. They can't figure out how to get out of this, the rules of the world as they have always understood it. And that's it, they're dead. This is the end. So, part of the imperative for us, you know, on Shabbat in the Jewish community, but much more broadly, I think, for any of us, for any human, certainly a, a human of faith, is that while so much of our life is Oriented towards what, trying to imagine what will happen and trying to control the outcome of things and being sort of practical and using our life experience to say, well, if I do it this way, this is going to happen. But if I do it this way, maybe I can make this happen. And it can be for very good ends, like absolutely to, to make the world a better place, however, we understand that that needs to happen. But there has to be space in our lives to not think practically. Like to just not just to imagine the dreamiest dreams of what the world could be and have no idea how to get there, have no Mm. practical plan, not try to advance anything. Because if we can't imagine, if we can't even dream of the world that we want to see, it's just that much harder. To ever be able to move things in that direction. But if every time we think of it, we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do? How do we get there next? It really limits, I feel like it limits our possibilities.
0: I really love that, Amy. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm thinking the same thing, but on the flip side. And I love the connection to Sabbath, which you're making in Deuteronomy 5. The way that I'm reading this is from the perspective of the Egyptians, I think, which is you know, put quite sort of simply is that the relentless pursuit of economic profit by means of military apparatus ultimately leads to destruction. Mm -hmm. And this is true in this story because the people that they are oppressing are God's people, the Israelites. And also I think that this is evidence of a God who is looking out for people who are in situations of oppression and that God enters in on the side of the of those who are oppressed. And so for me part of that command to observe the Sabbath with this story as its justification is because the Sabbath breaks the pattern of a relentless mm. pursuit of economic well-being. Yes, yes, You have got to yes. stop and realize yes. that there are other things in the world that matter more than profit yes. and those things by and large are people. And when you read this through the lens of Deuteronomy 5, like it actually lists, like you need to give your servants and your animals Mm -hmm, and all mm -hmm, of the people who mm -hmm. work for you a break because you used to have to labor relentlessly in Egypt and the Egyptians tried to exploit you. And so for me, there is a message in this text, especially for those of us who are reading from a North American context, especially those of us who are in more affluent communities in North America to say, I mean, look what happens to the Egyptians when they get caught up in the relentless pursuit of economic well-being through the application of military power. It, it does not end well, even though it seems like you're the most powerful people and you can do whatever you want. Uh, that that ultimately leads to its own destruction. So, mm. so stop it and take a break. And that's I love your image of a new people being birthed. I love reading that in this story as the birth of Israel and in the religious sense as in the, the birth of the Jewish community. I also think when you're talking about imagining new futures, that like the pause is what allows the birth to, to happen, right? That Mm -hmm. there is a, the crossing of the sea allows something new to happen, whatever that might be. And so, so the, the pause is, is the, is the key. I know there's so much in this text. Mm. Um, what, what keeps coming back to me is simply this pursuit of, of exploitation at the expense of others and how God is going to put a stop to that. And it's line, it's, maybe it's line two on God's resume. I can control water. <laughs> and if you pursue relentlessly pursue wealth at the expense of others, I'm going to put a stop to you.
1: Yeah. And that
0: continues on in the, in the prophets as, as we've talked about and elsewhere.
1: Mm, I love that. I'm not that sure what body. the gospel is exactly there. I love other it. Than I like, love it. Stop it. That's um, beautiful.
0: Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, next time we are going to be uh, continuing on in Exodus 19 and 20, talking mm-hmm. about the Ten Commandments. So it's not freedom simply for the sake of freedom, as you like to say, but freedom for obligation to live in a certain kind of way. And we'll, yes. we'll talk about that next time.
1: Sure will. Bobby, All right. Thanks, Amy. You. It's always good yeah. to talk
0: to you. I'll see you next time.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible podcast for details.
1: Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible.
0: Join us again next week when we'll be discussing the story of God revealing the Ten Commandments to Moses on Sinai as told in Exodus 19, 1-8 and 20, 1-21. Until then... On Diggy.